When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you should carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, it's been two years of study on the uh, book of Genesis. And at first glance, when we look at this uh, 50th chapter of Genesis, uh, we might think that this is sort of a, a proper ending to the book. In this chapter, Jacob, patriarch, Joseph, they both die, and they're embalmed. The, the family of Abraham, which has expanded now to 70-plus, are safe in Egypt. Or as the Santa story goes, they are nestled all snug in their beds. But wait a minute. That would be a happy ending if this was a Hallmark movie. But not to the book of Genesis. What happened to the promise that God had given to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob concerning the land of Canaan? They're in the land of Egypt. These last verses create more of a mystery for us than a storybook ending. What does Joseph mean that they are to take his body when they leave Egypt, when are they going to leave? And why doesn't Joseph just want a nice kingly burial for somebody as important as he was? Maybe he could get a pyramid built for himself in his new home country. He has spent the vast majority of his life down here in Egypt. So something's amiss. And we need to get to the bottom of it if we are going to understand the book of Genesis, if it is to have meaning in our lives. For those who have flipped the page and read on into the book of Exodus, you know that there is a rest of the story. 
But before reading on, perhaps we really need to go back. Back to the beginning, back to the genesis of it all, and look once more at the beginning of this story. When we do, then the theme from this passage will rise up and make the whole drama of Genesis come alive for us. That theme is that the same God who from creation worked throughout the book of Genesis is the same God who is continuing to work in our world for the same purpose that he was working in Genesis. God's purpose hasn't changed. Oh, we've been through a whole series of people. We've watched Adam and Eve. We've watched Cain and Abel. We've seen Seth and his generation. We've watched Noah and his sons. We've gone through Abraham, Ishmael and Isaac, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his 11 brothers. We've watched this all happen. But the purpose for which God created has not changed. It remains the same. The story of Genesis began with a bang. Some would call it the big bang, but we prefer the biblical term creation. God in six days gloriously put together this universe Stretching out the heavens, creating the earth with everything in it. Chapter 2 focuses the camera in more narrowly on the creation of humanity itself. Male and female, created by God. We see Adam and Eve united in marriage, the beginning of family, placed in this fabulous garden of Eden, where anything that you could possibly want was there. Suddenly, a serpent slithers through the trees. Disaster is about to strike. In a a movie, the the music would shift from nice, gentle, sweet-sounding music to the thunderous beginning of that evil sound. You know something is about to happen. Something that is not good is about to happen. Eve is deceived. Adam chooses to rebel. Judgment rolls down. Death enters into the world as humanity has turned against its creator. And from that moment on, I want you to notice how God works constantly to deal with humanity's sin. Sin. Self-interest now. That's how we've been defining sin as we've gone along. That plague of sin worked itself into the very hearts of humanity, to the very depths of our spirit, of our soul, until the whole of creation had become corrupted. And the thoughts of every human heart, the scripture says, was evil continuously. Roll the thunder and the lightning, the hail, the earthquake... Final pronouncement of the mighty judge. Death to all! And the flood comes. 
And all humanity is wiped out. Chapter 50. Chapter 50 ties us back to that event. Genesis 3, Genesis 6. Jacob, he's 147 years of age, but he's died. In the way of humanity, we all fight against this curse of death. And we even see how the Egyptians did that in verse 2, where it says that Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. You see, the Egyptians believed in life after death. That's why in the pyramids, when they open up these pyramids, you find all the, the, the grain and food and, and everything that, that that Pharaoh would need as he enters into that new life. The embalmed body is the, the, the way of, of making sure that, that he still has, in a sense, that healthy body to take on to the future. Well, Joseph didn't have the worldview of the Egyptians. But he did have a reason to have his father embalmed. When a great individual died, the Egyptians mourned over them for a lengthy period of time. We find in our text that it's 70 days they were mourning over the death of Jacob. They were then to travel and did travel up to Canaan to have him buried there and spend another seven days. If Martha would say to Jesus about Lazarus, after four days he stinketh, then what in the world would Jacob have spelled like after 77 days if he hadn't been embalmed? Yet those words remind us that even at 147 years, death comes to all. Even the great viceroy of Egypt, with all of the authority and power that that Joseph had to oversee everything that was going on in Egypt, even he could not stop death. We see in verse 26... So Joseph died. Being 110 years old, they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is the final chapter of the Genesis saga. All of the drama that has taken place as we have watched it unfold over the past two years, it still ends in the same way that chapter 3 ends. With death, those haunting words of Genesis 2, 17, continue to echo with all mankind. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What a sad ending to the very touching story of Joseph to the life of this great patriarch, Jacob, and to the fascinating book of of Genesis and Joseph 
died. The cloud of sin lying over humanity is like the stench of 9-11 over New York City. Eden is gone. Canaan has faded. The promises to Adam and Eve, to Seth, Noah, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have withered under those devastating words, and he died. Still, in the midst of this tragedy, there arrives a single small beam of light like a shaft of sunlight penetrating that dark cloud of sin, as we notice how God works constantly to deal with humanity by selection. You see, in the midst of this description of the deaths of these two patriarchs, there comes this word of hope. There is a promise remembered. God is not done with the human race. In spite of our rebellious and wicked hearts, God is not done. Yes, death falls upon all mankind, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So the grim reaper stretches forth that sickle to reap his harvest, sometimes of the young, and sometimes of those that are quite elderly. But to all, the wages of sin is death. Still, the fact of Joseph's being embalmed leaves a glimmer of hope. Is there life after death? Oh, not in the way the Egyptians might look at it, but listen to the word of hope that's found in verse 24. But God will visit you. Is there any greater hope than that? God will visit you. God has not abandoned you. Death comes, yes, but God has not abandoned. God will visit you, and he will bring you up out of the land, this land, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. A promise given a promise kept, as Jimmy said in his prayer. There's an escape from the tombs of Egypt that finds promise in these words. A promise that lingered for 400 years over the people of Israel as they lived there in the land of Egypt. But it was a promise nonetheless. A promise given by an eternal God to whom a day is like a thousand years. In a thousand years, like a day. A promise given by God to a select group of people. To an Abraham. A man born among idol worshippers in Mesopotamia. But called out of their midst to faith in the one true God. To Isaac, whose birth to a, menop- a, a post-menopausal woman brought laughter because of its impossibility. Truly a miraculous birth. And to Jacob, 
a treacherous manipulator, liar, deceiver, whose own sin led him to the brink of death time and again, and only the acts of God spared him from that death. None of these men deserved anything but the wrath of God, the fulfillment of death, the callous hand of death grasping them and pulling them down. Still, in spite of them, God selected them for his purpose. From the start, God worked to cure that curse that had come upon human beings because of our rebellious sin. We read about it in Genesis 4, that after the story of wicked Cain, whose descendants had shown total rebellion against God, rejecting him in every possible way as we studied back then. And yet we read this at the end of chapter 4. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. God at work selecting those who would be saved by His grace and by His mercy. And then the rolling thunder, the drops of rain looming on the horizon as the flood is about to come and to wipe out humanity from the face of the earth. In the midst of that, there's an astonishing event that occurs in Genesis chapter 6. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace, what is it? It's unmerited favor. It's undeserved favor. Noah was as guilty of sin as everyone else around him. His heart was as desperately wicked as any other heart. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That unmerited favor that God gives to those upon whom he has set his love from eternity. Those that he has chosen, selected out of the whole of the human race, to receive life in spite of death. And then, out of the shadow of the Tower of Babel, a monument raised in an attempt to overthrow the very throne of God himself, comes a man whose family rose up out of the land of Mesopotamia, the land that was the heart of human pride and antipathy toward the divine. And he comes, not because of any good in of himself, but by the effective call of the Lord God Almighty that we read in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to, Abraham, to Abram, go from your country and your kindred in your father's house to the land that I will show you. And to Abraham and to Sarah, a miraculous son is formed in that withered womb. For God has elected it to be so and gave that promise, his word, to that couple. Chapter 17. I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Laughter. (laughs) Laughter that this woman 
could have a child at her great age. Yes, we have walked through these chapters and we have marveled at the incredible mercy of God in spite of wicked hearts in full rebellion against him. But none was more surprising than that son that was born to Isaac and to Rebekah, his treacherous wife. For to Rebekah had come a word of promise, of divine selection. Chapter 25. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Jacob. Jacob is that one. Jacob, whose deceiving heart cheated, manipulated, and stole himself into a desperate hole so deep that only a God could get him out of it. And somehow, God had chosen to set his love upon him, to save him from that imminent death time and again, and then to meet with him when the Lord worked all things for God's glory and for the good of God's purpose as he weakened the flesh of Jacob but transformed his heart. And now, in chapter 50, Jacob dies. Jacob is embalmed. The final events of Genesis, however, do not leave the embalming of death. God would continue to select the people for his purpose by bringing them out of Egypt and into a promised land. Nor did the Lord of all stop with Israel. That they left Egypt, God had a greater, bigger plan, purposing that through the true seed of Abraham, that one seed of Abraham would come into the world, Jesus Christ, and through him to continue to select a people for himself out of this broken, sinful humanity that will be saved because the Son of God would go to a cross and die. Die for our wickedness, die for our sin, die in our place. The sovereign electing choice of God that we hear in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God. Yet all of that truth could be missed. It could be passed over if the central section of this text was missing. Joseph's brothers. These are men of jealousy and manipulation, deceit and fear, that seem to have been modeled by their father and learned by these sons, find themselves in a predicament. As long as Jacob lived, Jacob was the barrier between Joseph and them. But now Jacob has died. How do they know that Joseph will not now kill them, enslave them and their families? 
As long as Jacob lived, a wall stood there, but he was now gone. Surely, he had only been kind to them for the father's sake. Would Joseph now throw them under the bus? Or, in more correct terminology, under the wheels of the chariot? Normal circumstances might make that seem to be the right thing to do. But these are not normal, because God is involved. In this exchange between Joseph and his brothers, notice how God works constantly to deal with humanity by his sovereignty. Not with humanity because of what we have done or could do, but because God is sovereign. The word sovereign indicates that someone has absolute authority, absolute power, absolute authority. To talk about the sovereignty of God is to admit then that God rules over all things, that he controls everything by his eternal and his perfect will. Joseph helps us understand that in verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? The mightiest ruler on earth, perhaps at that time, was Joseph. With all of his political power, Joseph understood a truth that many of us miss on a regular basis. We are human. God is not. We have tremendous limitations. God has none. What wisdom radiates from those words of Joseph when he says, am I in the place of God? In other words, am I sovereign? Am I the one who has the right of life and death? No, only one has that right, and that is God. I want you to ask yourself that question. When you rise up in the morning, ask yourself, am I in the place of God today? In what I do and how I live, am I in the place of God to choose the decisions that I am going to make? Ask it again when you think that you've got life figured out. Am I in the place of God? Whenever you're about to make a decision, whether great or small, Ask yourself that question. Am I in the place of God? If you come to the same conclusion that Joseph did, I am a creature. God is creator. I am a finite being. God is infinite. I am limited in my reasoning skills. God knows the end from the beginning. That might keep you And it might keep me from making many mistakes in our lives. If God is sovereign, then it might be best for us to learn that God is doing things for his glory. So that, as Gamaliel said to the Sanhedrin, we need to be careful lest we be found to be fighting against God. Based on that truth, Joseph then went on in verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good 
to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The, the whole of Abraham's descendants, they are alive because God orchestrated even me being here in Egypt. You see, Joseph's worldview was not limited to his own circle of life. What's going on with me? He viewed the world from the top of the Empire State Building, looking out over the grandeur of the whole metropolitan area. God had told Abraham at one time, as he stood upon a mountain peak, to look out to the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west, as far as his eyes could see, that God was going to give him that land. Well, he has called us to do the same thing, to look at life not from our perspective, from our little circle of life, but to look at it from God's perspective and to see what God is doing in the midst of this world. And now Joseph is doing exactly that as he is looking with spiritual eyes at what has occurred in his life, which most people would say had been evil and is called evil by Jacob and is called evil by the brothers and is even called evil by Joseph himself. Most would look at it from that perspective. Those 13 years as a slave, 13 years in prison. And somehow... Joseph was able to see in the midst of all that that there's a sovereign God at work even in this part of my life, working all things according to His eternal purpose. And that's what it means to have a biblical worldview. Don't look at your life as beginning on the day of your birth. Your life is what began in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and all things in those heavens and all things on that earth. God created it all. He didn't create a world to lose it in a crapshoot with Satan. This is no chess match of God against deep blue that God might win or lose. Every movie was designed to to have conflict where it seems that one group is winning, the bad people are winning, but eventually the good win. And often we look at the world from that perspective thinking that somehow God is losing, but eventually he's going to win. We have a way of saying that, don't we? I've read the end of the book and we win. But have you really read the whole of the book? Have you really seen that God has never lost? God is not being defeated in this life. God is sovereignly in charge of all things. And while it may appear from our perspective that we are losing as Christians, we are not. God is at work And those 13 years of Joseph's life proved to us that God knows exactly what he is doing. And that's why we read in Proverbs 20, a man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his ways? If the Lord is directing my steps in his infinite wisdom and seeing my future and his future kingdom... How can I understand what's going on right now? Because I'm not infinite. I'm not omniscient. 
So whatever is going on in my life at this particular moment, to me, may look not so good. But I know that the King of kings and the Lord of lords is the one who is orchestrating even my life as part of what is going on in His eternal purpose. And such a trust drove the Apostle Paul to write in Romans 11, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments! How inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Yet even Joseph showed signs of wavering at times. It is only Jesus Christ Himself who fully trusted that God the Father knew what the plan of his life was to be and trusted him through it all, even to the point of death. He is the ultimate example of trust in the sovereignty of God. As those who placed our trust in Jesus Christ, may we follow in his footsteps and see our lives guided by the perfect and powerful hands of the sovereign over the universe. Finally, I want you to notice how God works constantly to deal with humanity in salvation. Ah, we begin with sin. We begin with death. But we end with salvation. A sovereign God working out His plans in all things, shining His light into the midst of the darkness of life here on earth. As all of creation groans awaiting the redemption of the sons of God. But there is redemption. There is salvation. There is life after death. There are not seven billion plans going on in this world. With seven billion people, there's one plan. There is one ultimate tapestry being woven. One divine theme that has run through every event and through every person in history. In the Bible, you can plainly see that plan being carried out in the lives of biblical characters. We see it in Rahab and Ruth. We see it in Esther and Elizabeth. We see it in Mary and Martha. We see it in Joseph and John, in Micah and Matthew, in Zebulun and Zechariah. Yet God's plan is interwoven not only through those great biblical characters, but it is being interwoven through every thread of every angel and every human with every lion and every gnat, as well as every star and every comet and every asteroid. He is working all things in the universe for His glory and for that ultimate final purpose of history. And it is why Joseph could command Jacob's grandchildren in verse 25. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. 400 years later, yes, it would take that long, but God had a plan. It was a purpose and a plan that started with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It continued through Noah and Abraham, passed on to Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Judah. With absolute confidence in that plan, Joseph could now know that the 12 tribes would leave because God had said it would happen and though it would take 400 years for them to leave Egypt and go into Canaan, he knew that they were going to go because God had orchestrated it. 
And so by faith, Joseph knew Exodus 13, 19 would happen. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and shall carry up my bones with you from here. 400 years. And a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph, who had to be brought and humbled before the eternal God for it to happen. But it happened. Forty years after that, Moses would proclaim to the people of Israel as they stood on the banks of the Jordan River. The words of Deuteronomy 24. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. God's plan of redemption, first mentioned in Genesis 3, verse 15, concerning a serpent's head being crushed, had continued unabated. And no matter what humanity and Satan had thrown against it, that promise has continued. And by faith, every saint in the Old Testament gazed far into the future to see the coming of the one who would ultimately crush that serpent's head for good. The one the Apostle Paul writes about in Galatians chapter 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who, hanged, who is hanged on a tree. And the sin that had plagued every human being because of that rebellion that we had against him. Every human being on the face of this planet, earth. That sin stared into the face of the lion of the tribe of Judah. And his mighty roar caused that sin from the cross to flee at those words, Father, forgive them. That's the story of Genesis. The beginning of it all and a foreshadowing of the promise that was to come. Death is defeated. Sin is forgiven. Hope is renewed. Eden is restored. God's promise for you, for me. And so I ask you in conclusion, if death and taxes are two certainties in this world, shouldn't you be prepared to face that death? Are you ready when death should call? Whether as a child or a 147-year-old man, are you ready? Have you come to understand God and his sovereignty have you heard his call upon your life? Have you responded by faith in Jesus Christ so that your sins might be forgiven and the promise of eternal life can be yours? God has made the way for us to face death through his son. Yes, it is true, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you know the hearts of all the, who are here today. You know what is in them. You know whether or not they are here this morning because they ought to be a religious person and go to church, or whether you have broken through, opened their eyes, given flesh to their hearts so that they might believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. 
And I pray, Lord, as we leave Genesis, that we would not leave behind stories, but we would leave it with a sense of the beginning of what God has done, is doing, and will complete on that day when the trumpet sounds and our Lord Jesus Christ returns. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the air. And thus we will be forever with the Lord. Break through the hardness of the hearts of those who have not yet trusted in Christ, that they might believe and be saved. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.